Hello and welcome to Original Owners. 95% of employee-owned companies don't start out that way. Original Owners tells the stories of companies that have become employee-owned. It's a new series by Certified Employee-Owned. From Certified EO, you've got myself, Thomas Dudley, joined by Adrian Gein. And today for our very first episode, we are joined by Sean Burcham, the founder and CEO of PFS Brands. Sean, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so Sean, you started PFS Brands in 1998 as Pro Food Systems. You're about 23 years in now. You've had tremendous amounts of success, uh, double-digit growth in nearly every year, spent a number of years on the, the uh, Inc. 5000 list of uh, fastest growing private companies. So just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the company, why don't you tell us a bit about PFS Brands today? Sure. PFS Brands uh, is 100% employee-owned. We're super proud of that, obviously, and uh, glad to be part of this video. Uh, beyond that, PFS Brands primarily focuses on putting branded food programs inside supermarkets and convenience stores. Uh, we have about uh, 1,700 branded locations now across the country, and we service uh, roughly 15 in some way in some way or form, we sell to about 15,000 convenience stores or supermarkets through about 85 different wholesale distribution points across the, the country. Uh, obviously, uh, it didn't start out like that, but uh, that, that is what we do today. We have, uh, we have three franchise brands and we have three licensed brands that we go to market with uh, inside supermarkets and convenience stores now across about 42 states. Fantastic. And what, what are those brands? I'm sure people, some people listening have probably encountered them out, out in the wild. On the, on the chicken side and our original brand, actually how we started is Champs Chicken. So that's what we call our flagship brand. That's, that's what got us to where we are today. And uh, ultimately what created a lot of that double digit growth that you talked about. Uh, in addition to Champs Chicken, that is a franchise brand now. Uh, we have Cooper's Express that we acquired out of Seattle and have since grown that brand across the country since 2014. So that's uh, our franchise brand is Champs, licensed brand is Cooper's Express. Uh, we also have uh, two Mexican concepts, one called Blue Taco. Uh, so think Chipotle, Qdoba, uh, except inside supermarkets and convenience stores. And we have a licensed brand called Hot Mex Express in that Mexican category. And just this year, we rolled out Hangar 54 Pizza, which is our franchise pizza brand. And we have Wingman Pizza, which is our uh, licensed pizza brand. So uh, those six brands, along with uh, uh, other just product uh, brands, uh, drive our business to what it is today. Do you have a favorite brand of all those? I think any founder is probably <laughs> partial to their the what, what they started with. So definitely Champs Chicken. It's... Uh, I've got, I've got a real passion for the chicken business in general. Uh, I stay healthy, but I love fried chicken. Uh, everything, everything's, everything's great in moderation. So I'm highly partial to our Champs Chicken brand and uh, really fortunate to have uh, got that opportunity to start that and uh, blessed with all the opportunities we've had along the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's probably a good, good transition to talking more about the beginning of the company. Um, and kind of your origin. So I guess just going back to the very beginning, when did you first know that you wanted to start a business? Well, I actually started my first business when I was almost 14. So I, I had a, a lawn mowing business that uh, we uh, had a partner in and uh, we actually uh, went out and uh, did the door-to-door -door knocking and went out and mowed uh, yards for several summers going through high school. So 
my dad always had some different side jobs going on in different businesses, even though he had a full-time career. So I think even at, at a young age, just coming from uh, an entrepreneurial and business-minded family, I just always kind of had that itch. Uh, with that being said, going through high school uh, and even the first couple years of college, I had no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> uh, I was actually just joking last week with somebody, all the aptitude tests that you take in high school that tells you what you should be. Uh, all of mine always came back that I should be a mechanic. So uh, I don't know how, how I ended up in business, but actually uh, I love business. I, I, I decided about my sophomore year in college to declare that business degree and actually wrote a, a note. I'm a huge goal setter. And uh, the day I graduated college, I wrote a note, stuck it in my dresser and just said, I want to own my own business by the time I'm 28. And, um, we, we barely hit that goal, uh, but that's what we ended up doing. And uh, just, uh, I, I think a lot of founders, maybe even entrepreneurs will tell you, they're just not cut out to work for other people. And, and I was one of those. Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, thinking about the very first day at Pro Food Systems, what was that like? Where did you, where'd you first meet? Who was there? And, and, and what was the, the focus, the original concept? Yeah, it's a great question because most people don't really know. Uh, Champs Chicken is certainly what put us on the map, but we actually started as a coffee and cappuccino company. I had, a, I had some push button cappuccino machine, machines that we would put inside restaurants. And uh, at that time they had kind of a unique counter on them. They had five drinks and they would count the type of drinks that you made. And I would go in and collect every other week. And I did that part-time while I was working uh, for an employer. I did that on the weekends and evenings after hours. And, uh, it never really made a lot of money. Uh, so uh, we were fortunate to fall into the chicken. But really the, the first day, I'll kind of start there, the first day of uh, leaving my job. And, and I was actually working for a competitor at the time. So it was a little bit dicey from a uh, from an ethical standpoint and just making sure I wanted to do everything ethically to make sure I left without doing anything unethical. Uh, so that was, that was critical. But I do remember the first day after quitting, uh, deciding what we were going to do, I had set up an office in my home and uh, just kind of sitting in that office. And this was the early days of internet. Uh, Adrian, you might not appreciate that. There was, a, there was a time when we didn't have internet and uh, it was very early on. And uh, I, I, I sat there, I'm just waiting for the phone to ring. I'm like, nobody even knows who we are. What, I mean, what do I do now? And um, so obviously didn't spend a lot of time in the office, got out and started hustling and, and selling things. And uh, I do remember just that feeling of loneliness, that first day sitting in the office with, without anything really that you had to do other than go figure out how you're going to put food on the table. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And in that, in the beginning, was it, um, how many founders were there of, of Pro Food Systems? I guess either from day one or, or really when you made that leap to, to go out on your own and, and focus on chicken. Yeah, it's always just been my wife and I. So Julie and I started the company. Uh, she has, uh, she's not been highly involved in the company. Uh, we made a decision after we got married that uh, she was going to uh, stay home and ultimately raise our three girls. We didn't know we were going to have three girls at the time, but that's, uh, that's how it shook out. And, uh, she has been, uh, uh, she has done that, which has allowed me to, to put the type of hours in that it takes to, to do what we've done. So, uh, but it was just the two of us and she was highly supportive of that. And fortunately came from an entrepreneurial family. So, uh, good or bad kind of understood what she was getting into. It must've been really kind of scary to have, uh, a child and, and a wife staying home and then starting this whole new thing on your own. 
Yeah, it's actually pretty highly motivating uh, when, when you have that happen. <laughs> I guess you could look at it that way. When you, when you hear the real story and, and the way I really tell it, because it, it was terrible timing, is we went from a double income family with no kids to a one income family with, with uh, uh, actually a one kid family with no income. Yeah, wow. So it's, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's a little bit humbling looking back and, and uh, kind of stupid actually looking back to, from the timing. We were, uh, we, we were, uh, we were extremely confident in what we could do, but man, I think if one of my kids would do that, I'm not sure I would be as highly as supportive as maybe her father-in-law or her, my father-in-law and my father both were as far as uh, taking the leap. So. Was there ever a point in the first year or two where you felt like you made a, a big mistake in doing that? No, there really wasn't. And, and I'm actually not much of a, I actually have a little bit of a time looking back because I'm so visionary and looking forward so much. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really, truly, even as hard as it was, uh, the hours that I was putting in, uh, my, my dad always told me, he said, you, you work hard, you dream big, you, you think about those opportunities and, and those things that you can accomplish and you can do anything that you put your mind to. And really, you're so busy, at least I, in my mentality, I was so busy that I didn't have time to think about the looking back and, uh, and having uh, regrets or anything. And, and fortunately, I was out hustling and we put on some business. And uh, the first year was, from a sales standpoint, really higher than expected. I like to look back at my first year, six year plan and we really accomplished that in about 14 or 15 months. Wow. So the business itself, uh, the business model and uh, what we did to put it together, I uh, feel really fortunate that we, we found chicken as opposed to coffee. The coffee wasn't working too well for us. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I've done starts with a C though. I started out selling cheese in my professional career with, <laughs> with Mid-American Dairymen. So we kind of stuck with that until we went with Mexican. So that's funny. You got to have a focus. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, I'm kind of curious. So you're all right. So you start the business, you go from two incomes, no kids to one in basically one kid, no, no incomes, just as an entrepreneur. Um, you're sitting in that office on that first day. What sort what was the how did you get that early traction? Like what really led to that initial growth to the point where you could accomplish fix your plan in 14 or 15 months, which is not something you normally see with, with new companies <laughs> kind of goes the other way most of the time. So what, what early on did you do to, to get that initial traction? I think we, we got fortunate with an equipment company. We, we had, even though we didn't have a company, we, we cut a deal with a, a, a South Carolina equipment manufacturer called BKI that manufactured some high volume or uh, high quality equipment. And they gave us kind of an hourglass section in Missouri which didn't consist of St. Louis or Kansas city. It really didn't have much in it, but it gave that rural area that allowed us to have a, a good equipment company along with a brand. So knowledge of the industry and just uh, the, the hustle to go out and find business and get it. It's much different in what we did than, than say retail where you got to try to get people to come to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly we didn't have the internet. So it was just going out and knocking on doors and hustling and uh, you know, we, we got one account. We did what we said we were going to do. And uh, those uh, word of mouth references is really in the early days what we built our, our business and what we built our brand on. So just trying to do it better than our competitors and uh, out, out there doing what we say we're going to do. And to this day, that's the culture that we build is a culture of work ethic. And uh, hey, if you tell somebody something, just make sure that you do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Adrian, did you have a question? 
Well, I was going to ask who your first hire for employee was, was that first person you brought on with you? Yeah, the first person was actually a good friend of mine uh, that, uh, that we hired just kind of in a support role and uh, ultimately didn't, uh, didn't make it, but uh, was, was a big help at the time. And one of the things I like to talk about with scaling businesses is uh, there's certain people, whether they're, they're good hires, bad hires, whatever, they, they, they help you make it to the next step. And, and recognizing sometimes when the company outgrows people or when people outgrow the company is a good leadership trait that uh, so many people don't recognize and they either try to hold on to good people or bad people too much uh, and, instead of just uh, uh, acknowledging the fact that sometimes you can't take care of everybody, but it, sometimes the company is gonna outgrow people as well. So uh, as we've scaled and, and as I've become uh, more obsessed with learning from the best thought leaders in the world. That's some of the things that I've learned and picked up on. Yeah, that's very interesting. I know you have a very uh, strong cultural perspective and, and have a very, almost like a system with the open book management, um, which we'll, we'll definitely get into. But I think before we get into that, I want to fast forward a little bit and talk about your employee ownership. So when did that idea of making PFS brands into an employee-owned company, when did that really first show up on the radar? That's a great question. Our, our industry, like I said, deals with a lot of supermarkets. And, and as you know, there are a lot of supermarket employee-owned companies. Uh, obviously, we name one of the biggest one publics out there, but uh, I became acquainted with that by working with supermarkets and, and the that's the only reason I really knew what an ESOP was. As you guys know, you can go through a business degree in college and nobody ever talks about what an ESOP is as a business structure, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, frustrating to those of us that are so passionate about ESOPs. But uh, I, I really didn't know what it was until uh, we started uh, getting familiar with it in the supermarket. And uh, my father-in-law has some supermarkets. I actually helped him explore the opportunity uh, at one point and it, it wasn't really a good fit for him at the time, uh, but I learned a lot more about it. And this is in the, the 2012 timeframe. Mm -hmm. uh, so I became really obsessed with the idea of it. And uh, we were really scaling and growing and, and we wanted to send a message to our employees and our community that we weren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly were intrigued with the tax benefits of the ESOP and how those tax benefits can allow you to uh, not only grow the company, but give it back to the employee owners versus paying it in taxes. So uh, that was extremely appealing to me. Uh, but uh, really just giving everybody a stake in the outcome uh, of, of what this thing could be and, and sending a message to the community and the employees that we're not going anywhere. We're not selling out to private equity. We're not selling out to a bigger company. Uh, we're passionate about growing this thing and making it a company that uh, may potentially and, and hopefully will be around 100 plus years from now. Yeah, that's excellent. I really, I mean, y'all are such a, so passionate. I know you, you yourself are extremely passionate about this idea and we've talked about it before at, at conferences and, and other, uh, just is that the values in the community employership piece and the, the values in your company are so aligned. Um, so it sounds like it starts coming on the radar for you, at least through some of these, these uh, through your customers, essentially working with, with grocery stores and convenience, uh, convenience stores maybe in like 2012, 2013 was when it first came on the radar. Um, but I know y'all didn't actually do the ESOP transition until I believe 2017. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah, the actual transition was in 2017. We, we actually did set the ESOP up in 2015 Okay. Uh, as, as far as the structure. Uh, I brought on a uh, one of the things, as uh, most people know, that will probably watch this video and some others that don't. There are there are some complexities that go into the ESOP and that structure and and what it takes to set one up and and maintain one. And uh, I'm, I'm not really that technical person, so I really needed we didn't have a CFO at the time. Uh, I really needed to get a CFO that was passionate about culture and uh, wanted to, to help kick this thing over the finish line, along with our vice president of human resources. Uh, so those two people were very instrumental, uh, our CFO coming on board and actually us going to conferences and, and making sure that we uh, knew exactly what we wanted to do, meeting all the people, uh, getting this thing all put together, but certainly from an implementation and an ongoing maintenance standpoint, uh, those two have been instrumental in what we do with the ESOP. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it really did. Uh, 2017 is when we actually pulled the trigger uh, on the transaction, and we did a 100% leveraged ESOP transaction. Uh, some of that actually changed through the time frame, and I think you'll probably ask about, you know, how did we communicate and things like that. But we did not initially go into this thing thinking that uh, we're going to be 100% ESOP uh, on the first tranche. I Yo, tell me, I'd love to hear a little bit more, I'm sure people listening to about the, the kind of the process of, of exploring that. So from hearing about it in 2012, he sounds like you set it up in uh, a few years after that. Um, I mean, what went on in that process of exploring? So number one, just learning about the ESOP for myself and our CFO, getting our heads wrapped around how everything would work, uh, the process, uh, how, to, how to set up the documentation. Uh, we had got some what I consider to be poor advice early on. And our advice was say, hey, you can do 10% a year for the next 10 years and you can just sell 10% every year uh, hmm. to the ESOP. And looking back now, and, and some people that might be great for us, so I wouldn't discourage that, but I would not want to disrupt the company myself and to, to have to work through a transaction like that every year, uh, knowing what I went through, it seems to be a little cumbersome and probably would have been burdensome on the company, mm. uh, having to do that each year. So I do think if I was giving somebody advice today, I would say a, a one, two or three stage transaction as far as percentage of ownership would be a better way to go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we dug into it, we went from a 10% uh, thought process to a 30%. Uh, and then as we looked at it a little bit more and what we could do for our people, uh, what the cash flow advantages was, uh, different structures from a seller seller standpoint that uh, that we could uh, negotiate and build into the deal. Uh, we ultimately just decided, hey, let's go for it. Let's get all in, and uh, we went from that zero to 100 percent. So there was a transition in there from 10 to 30 to ultimately 100 <laughs> percent. Sure. I will I will give credit to the state of Missouri and and was instrumental in in helping uh, to some degree get this pushed across that they. Uh, they passed an ESOP law that uh, helped on the capital gains portion for the seller mm. uh, if you created an ESOP that was more than 30% employee owned. So that also played into the decision making of at least getting to 30%. Interesting. And I guess kind of along those lines, was there anything throughout that two, three years exploring this, uh, this transition? Was there anything or at any point Anything that almost made the deal not happen, like a major roadblock that that almost almost killed the deal. 
Yeah, the only major roadblock was was uh, in my head was the the uh, again I'm not a, uh, I'm very technical, very data driven only when I need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, maybe I'll say it this way: a as a founder, you get to run the business the way you want to run the business, and you even even as collaborative as uh, as I was through the years. Uh, you don't have a board of directors to answer to. Uh, it's a very simple system. Uh, so that structure that has to come in place should come in place. Uh, and the way that we operate now, I would say uh, I like that structure. That that was the roadblock for me is, okay, do I really want to deal with this structure and mm. quarterly board meetings and those things that quite frankly were coming along as our company was scaling anyway. Uh, but for me, that was really the only roadblock. I didn't ever look back and think, man, the ESOP's not right for me or mm. uh, any of those things. It was just more of the fear of the unknown of, uh, I call it the, the red tape involved. And I will say that has been pretty simple. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of changes, especially as you have people that can handle that uh, mm. in the organization. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't want to go too far into, into the, the details there, but I'm just curious in terms of that structure, um, do you have an internal trustee for your ESOP or did you do an external trustee? And, and I guess similarly, if you're willing to share on the, on the board side, any sort of the major changes that you made there um, in order to put that necessary kind of governance in place for the ESOP. That's a great question. Uh, most of the time, especially with a hundred percent transaction, uh, especially with an external trustee. And if you're doing it correctly, that structure is going to have to change. Mm. And I, I say that depending upon the structure that you have. So let me first just say it was just my wife and I on the board. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we ran the board. We had the board meetings. That, that was it. So uh, we didn't really have a board structure. Uh, so what we did is we did hire an external trustee. Uh, I felt much better about that because we wanted to make sure the transaction was legitimate and, and ongoing. We still have an external trustee. Uh, I like that extra insurance policy, if you will, to make sure that, uh, hey, we're not running this thing like it's my company. We're running it like it's an employee-owned company. Hmm. Uh, so any major decisions, uh, obviously, we bounce off of that trustee. Part of our structure was to hire at least two external board members. Uh, so we did that. We have two external board members. Uh, my wife and I still sit on the board, and then our, our internal board member is our CFO. So right now we have a board of five mm. as, as we progress, we're about four years in now, as we progress, we'll most likely move that to seven, but I'm not a big believer in boards or leadership team above seven, mm. um, seven or eight. So, uh, and I like an odd number on a board just from a voting perspective. So makes um, a lot of sense. again, you, you ask a dozen different people about that. They may give you a dozen different answers, but it's just my personal preference. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That makes, well, it makes a lot of sense too. Um, well, and then, okay, let's think about, okay, so we're doing this trans transition to ownership, right? Obviously um, there's things to consider about the ESOP, those, those sort of details to work out. Um, but a major consideration as well is telling the new, the new owners what you've done. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you rolled this out to people, how you shared it with the company um, and obviously what their reaction was like as well. Yeah, another great question. Let me try to maybe wrap that up into a story because uh, I'll go back to our CFO and I really started this in about 2014. 
mm. uh, going on this journey of exploration, uh, going to ESOP conferences, National Center of Employee Ownership conferences, uh, really just trying to learn about this. We're talking to all kinds of different people, uh, which is great about employee-owned companies. They love to share stuff. And uh, the culture that we got involved with was great. Uh, we were also an open book management company at the time, uh, just kind of uh, not necessarily getting any coaching from the great game of business, but implementing a lot of their uh, ideas and practices. Uh, so Trevor is our CFO. So Trevor and I are walking around all these conferences and talking about our culture and, hey, you know, we're recognized for a great place to work. We're on the Inc. 5000 list. Uh, we're open book and people are interested in open book, number one. Uh, they're interested in the culture. And at, at the end of the day, we found out we were extremely odd. A lot of people that move down this ESOP journey are retiring. They're using it for an exit strategy. Uh, they're trying to get employee ownership to try to get people engaged. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we weren't doing that. We were just trying to give everybody more of a stake in the outcome. And uh, so we started having all these people ask us about, hey, tell me about your culture. Tell me about open book. Tell me about all this. And we found out, man, only about 15 to 25 percent of the organization is open book, number one. But we also found out a lot of the people are working toward a better culture. Uh, and some have found that, hey, just employee ownership didn't matter. Uh, you still have to focus on the culture and make it intentional. So mm. uh, so that goes along with just the, the journey and how we told people we're, we're completely transparent. In fact, even to uh, we had announced that we're going to make it a 10 percent employee owned company. Uh, we had announced, hey, we're thinking about a 30 percent employee owned company. Uh, we kept our employees uh, informed all the way through this process. Uh, and then they were surprised when we decided we were going to 100%. Uh, but they knew they knew when it was coming. They knew it was coming. And that they knew ultimately they were going to be able to positively affect uh, another retirement fund, if you will, uh, by being a part of an ESOP. So uh, that, most companies don't do that. Uh, we, we just, again, being open, transparent. Uh, we just kept them informed uh, through the entire process, uh, the timing and everything, and uh, they knew they knew what was coming. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's definitely a little different than what I've heard from from other business owners, where often what will happen is they'll kind of explore it in a smaller group, and then there will be a big dramatic announcement, which is a great thing to do, and and obviously works for a lot of folks. But for y'all, just given the culture and and the open book piece, which I definitely want to circle back to, um, but more fitting with that culture had actually been telling people along the way. Um, but then when you actually did the tran transaction, how'd you mark that occasion? Oh, again, they, they knew it was coming. So we, we, we didn't do, we didn't, we didn't do a huge thing. Then we had us, it was in the sure. middle of winter here. So January 3rd in, uh, in Missouri is not uh, real <laughs> conducive to going outside, but uh, we, we did have a, we did have a company party. Okay. That year we always had an annual party pre COVID and, uh, then, uh, you know, we, we, we kept it going with a party uh, just a couple of weeks after. We, we always do our party in January. So oh. uh, that timing worked out, but it wasn't, again, it just wasn't, it wasn't a massive announcement other than, hey, it's here, it's done, uh, because they, they knew what was coming. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how, how technical did you get with the explanation of the ESOP and the transaction with employee owners? Because I know you do do that open book management, which makes it seem like you have very candid, open financial conversations with people. So did that translate with the ESOP? Did you really kind of go into the technical side of things or did you keep it 
kind of more high level at first? We, we definitely kept the transaction high level. Uh, as far as how the ESOP works, the tax, tax advantages of the ESOP, the income statements uh, ongoing, uh, we share those things every month. Uh, in, in fact, uh, our entire company is involved with owning lines of the income statements. So uh, wow. if, I, if I understand your question correctly, the, the transaction, yeah. we didn't disclose transaction pricing, things like that. Uh, but uh, post-transaction, uh, you know, everything is there. And, and most of our, uh, most of our people are financially literate enough to understand really what that transaction was, but we just don't talk about it that yeah. much. I'm, uh, one of our core values is uh, straight talk, uh, you know, straight talk and simple is better, but also entitlements don't exist. Uh, so we have created a culture of ownership thinking and I, and I don't think any other owner should apologize for what they did to to start a company that that grew and 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 helped uh, create more capitalism uh, and gave somebody an opportunity to do something above and beyond what maybe others can do, uh, we encourage that same thing within our own company. And in fact, have lost. I mentioned losing people earlier. Uh, we've lost some people to entrepreneurship. Uh, when you create a mindset like we try to create you're creating more entrepreneurs, you're creating more capitalism. So we've had some people go off and start their own. We've created other companies that allow some of our employee owners to go do that same thing and run a company and have a bigger stake. So uh, we're very transparent with the numbers. We're very uh, transparent with opportunities and, and quite frankly, very supportive in helping everybody be more successful, uh, not just here at work, but in their own life. That's fantastic. And that probably is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about your approach to open book management um, as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of when that first became something that you started doing, how you heard about it, and, and kind of how is that, how, a bit how, on how that's grown over time. Yeah, again, I relate back to another story in 2011, because I, I call 2011 my aha moment from, a, from really a leadership perspective. Uh, so first of all, I'll say uh, my biggest hero was my father. Um, he spent his entire life helping abused and neglected kids. Uh, he spent his whole life in social work and uh, director of Missouri Child Care Association and uh, extremely patient man. Uh, I did not pick up his patience uh, and I could not and I could not do what he did. Uh, but he was obsessed with helping other people. Uh, especially those that couldn't help themselves. Mm. So my aha moment was after uh, reading a couple books uh, and I was not a big reader. I'd only read two books and they were back in the eighth grade. So the old man in the sea and where the red fern grows. Oh, where the red fern grows. I cried so hard at that one. Oh my gosh. Uh, no joke. I got through high school and college without reading a book from cover to cover. I hated English. I hated writing. I had speech problems and, and hearing problems as a kid. Uh, I couldn't speak in front of people. Uh, but bottom line is I didn't read a book until I was 40. And, and our part-time CFO that I had hired handed me a book uh, called uh, The Danger Zone, Stuck in the Growth Transition. And it was about founders and entrepreneurs that, <clears throat> that start companies. <clears throat> excuse me, they start companies and then all of a sudden they grow these companies and they find themselves kind of stuck with, man, this thing's a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. What do I do now? Uh, and I was at a time where I was working 70, 80, 90 hours a week 
I was here before the truck drivers got here. I was here when they got home from their 12 hour routes and really just in, stuck in a bad place. Our sales had went from 12 million to 24 million in two years and we didn't make any more money. Uh, so the next book I picked up was The Great Game of Business. And um, actually he, he handed it to me, the CFO. So I hired a, a high paid CFO consultant uh, to make me read. And he'll say to this day, that's, that's probably the best thing that he did for me uh, because I've become obsessed with that. But uh, the open book management idea came from the great game of business. And I didn't even know they had a coaching company after reading it, but the aha moment for me was two things. Number one, I, I, I figured out at age 40, my purpose, and I, I'd been doing it for, for 12 years in the company, but I love creating opportunities for people and I love helping them get better in a different way than what my dad did. He was helping people that couldn't help themselves. I love helping people that can help themselves and want to get better. So for me, it's all about creating opportunities. But then what I didn't understand, aha moment number two was, man, I'm stuck in this business world. I grew up with it. We sit around the dinner table talking about it. I'm sitting with my parents and in-laws. That's all we talk about is business and we understand it. What, what the normal population doesn't understand is how businesses work and how difficult they are to work. Mm. And if, if there's anything the great game of business did for me and even the danger zone and now multiple books that I've read over the years, we live in a financially illiterate world. Uh, and I teach and I ask questions on this, this stuff and that's reality. People don't understand how hard business is. The misperception that's out there is far worse uh, than what's really going on in the business world. So uh, mm. what I did is completely turn my approach from getting customer focused where I was for the first 12 years to get employee focused. And today, probably one of the few CEOs that stand up in front of customers and say the customer's not first. Uh, the employees are first. In our case, the employee owners are first. If we don't take care of them as a company, they're not going to take care of you. So that shift of kind of the culture that was not broken, not bad, went from that to just kind of throwing rocket fuel on it by doing some education and quite frankly, some crude education early on. We, we've got it down to a science today, but uh, very crude education. But the bottom line turned in one year just by some minor education and getting people more involved and more engaged in the company. That's apologize, apologize for the long winded answer. Oh, that was great. That was great. I mean, there's so many, yeah, there's so many different things to kind of dig into there. That is, uh, I would love to see your customers faces when you tell them they're not first, right? <laughs> Obviously you have a great way of turning that around and making it clear. And I think you're right, right? If you don't take care of your people, then they can't take care of a care of the customer. And it also links well with the, the ownership, uh, obviously the culture and the, the, the financial ownership through the ESOP, uh, come together quite well there. I don't think we've lost a customer because of that, but I don't have any data to really support that. But uh, to, to, to what I can think about, I do not believe we've lost a customer with that statement. <laughs> it is a little risky sometimes. Yeah, definitely uh, catches the attention, I'm sure. I'm sure you get all the attention in the room when you say that. Um, <laughs> it's a little quiet. <laughs> that's right. Well, obviously, I mean, it from kind of our, uh, so, I mean, just the, the incredible growth that you've had, I think another thing that just to, to emphasize is how um, not only do you have these various brands in inside the, the stores, but you've also been branching out within a business. I know you're, you're looking at um, 
you mentioned kind of a freight division almost and, and obviously grit business, uh, the business coaching side of things with, with grit, um, almost like turning your culture and the way you, you all do things in terms of that open book management piece uh, into a differentiator for, for this, um, the way that you do things, making that the advantage and entering other lines of business, maybe adjacent to, to the, the original line of business, but then also turning that coaching into something that you go and maybe teach to other companies as well. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about, I guess there's two questions in there. The, almost the culture as the differentiator and, and, and how that's been working and where you see that going. And then we can also talk a little bit, love to hear a little bit about grit as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, we completely 100% are bought into the culture as a differentiator. And uh, in fact, I would say every company. So mm. there's really two things. The hardest thing in business in my mind is execution. Mm -hmm. you, you have all these plans, you do all these things, but at the end of the day, you have to execute in any business. If you don't do that, that's the difference between the, the, the bad, the good, and the great. So number one, you have to execute. In order to execute, we believe firmly that you have to have a great culture. Uh, and that's the best way to do it, especially with the next generations that are, are in business and coming up in the business. So uh, culture, number one, creates engagement in our mind. From the You, you ask about different businesses, it goes back to creating other opportunities and just having a, uh, I would say maybe even a warped sense of entrepreneurship in my, in my case. Uh, I, I'm just, uh, I, I love creating new things, new opportunities, especially those that uh, uh, are profitable and create more opportunities. So uh, we got vertically integrated with our PFS freight company. Mm -hmm. uh, we just did that this past year on January 1. Uh, an employee owner took that upon himself to bring the business plan and uh, uh, break that company out into its own company. Uh, we already hauled our own freight, uh, but we didn't have uh, the capability to do brokerage. So uh, in one year, that's proven profitable. Uh, five years ago, we, we broke out our blending company and got vertically integrated with our, with our blends. Mm. Uh, the vision, <clears throat> the vision in, in other companies, they, they could be related or they can be not related as long as we feel it's a good business model and, and we can take a, uh, take somebody and give them an opportunity to run that entity, that's what we want to do on, on, underneath our ESOP. And that will include acquisitions as well as uh, new starts. Uh, the grit business coaching was something that our entire board of directors invested in. The ESOP has majority ownership of that. Uh, and that really, guys, came from all of those questions that we were getting at all these different conferences that we were going to. Uh, and even having uh, some people come in and say, man, you guys, uh, without sounding arrogant, you, you guys are just doing it better than anybody that we've seen. Uh, you, you, you guys should, you guys should coach, you know, <laughs> got people telling us, we, we put out surveys to our employees, say, hey, if we could start a company, what would it be? 50% response, hey, we ought to have our own coaching company. Wow. So, uh, hey, that's what we did. And uh, so it's, it's humbling. We coach companies that are much larger than us, uh, smaller, larger. Uh, we've, we've coached companies as high as $10 billion in annual sales. Wow. Uh, and that's pretty humbling to have people come to us and say, hey, we, we want to create more engagement. Uh, we want to have open book leadership. Uh, some do, some don't in, in grit business coaching. We prefer that. Uh, that's the easiest way for me to do it. Uh, but we can put some other things in place with key performance indicators and and things like that to coach companies that don't necessarily want to be open book. 
You mentioned earlier that you didn't like public speaking. So what shifted in you now that you, I'm assuming you, you do a lot of public speaking is it just <laughs> experience that you got over it or is it something you really had to work at? It's definitely something I had to work at. So I, I was at, I was a terrible writer. I was a terrible reader. I still don't think I read very fast compared to probably what a lot of people do. Uh, and that was created. I, I had a hearing problem until I was eight years old. So my parents didn't recognize it. Uh, that I, I grew up that first eight years without hearing 50% of everything. Wow. Okay. So that created all kinds of speech problems. I spent years in speech therapy and uh, went to a small Catholic school through eighth grade. And you had to get up in front of church and read and all these things. I was just petrified of oh. uh, that. My dad was great at, and he always pushed me to do those things. I didn't want to. Uh, so ultimately uh, it, the public speaking has come a little more natural just because of the business and having to be in front of people more often. And it's certainly been a goal. Uh, so anything with me has to revolve around a goal if, if it gets accomplished. And for me, writing a book and public speaking became a goal of kind of overcoming that major childhood, uh, uh, you know, those childhood weaknesses that, uh, hey, you know, if you got somebody telling you that you can do anything, you almost got to be a role model to have something uh, yeah. to do that. Now, I've since met people that got far better stories than me in overcoming challenges and, and so much respect for those that overcome any challenges. But man, I've met some people that uh, it's hard to believe that they're, they're even functioning, much less uh, in a CEO role. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a tangent, but can you talk a little bit about your goal, how you structure them? Do you do like short-term and long-term goals? It seems like it's a very important part of your leadership style and just in general, your life. Yeah, it really is. Uh, our, uh, so personally, yes, is the answer to that. Uh, we have created and written our own goal setting system. Uh, we tried some others and didn't like any of them. So we wrote, uh, we have a program called Grit Track that we wrote. Uh, it's a strategic plan software. So we keep all of our strategic plan but the real purpose of grit track is to try to get people, <clears throat> excuse me, not to try to get people, but to, for lack of a better word, we make people set goals. You can't work in this company if you're, if you don't set a goal, yeah. uh, only 17% of the population sets goals. So that, that might be astounding to anybody that's a goal setter. It was to me, but think about that. Only 17% of people set goals. Yeah. And only one half of 1% of people write their goals down. One half of 1%. Now, the real staggering thing is you're 50% more likely to achieve your goal if you just write it down, even if you never look at it again. Wow. So the purpose for us in, in trying to drive in a results-based uh, business, hey, we got to be setting goals. We got, we've got to get people on board that either like to set goals or are willing to do that or you're going to be extremely uncomfortable here at PFS. Mm -hmm. uh, so the goal setting system is definitely, uh, we give them uh, areas where they can set personal goals and professional goals, and we coach them on that time frame. So to your question, Adrian, uh, short-term goals, yes, whether it's one week, one day, um, one month, one quarter, uh, annually. <clears throat> Our goals as a company definitely revolve around quarterly and annual goals. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but some of those have to be broken down into daily or, or weekly, depending upon what it is. Mm -hmm. 
That's fantastic. And I, I think um, on that leadership topic, uh, obviously having the open book coaching coming in, you said you, you started that around 2011, right? The transition to employership 2017. So you had a number of years to work on that. Um, but then it's kind of uh, moving from being a, a founder owned business to, to an employee owned business what's kind of the difference there from a leadership perspective? I mean, yourself as the CEO or, or your, your executive team, even managers, like what's different about being a leader within an employee owned company? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's, uh, man, that, that, that is a good question. I'm going to answer that maybe in a little bit different way, because I think you have to be, you have to be a certain type of leader to lead in to lead effectively in an employee owned company. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't think my leadership approach has changed much. Mm-hmm. Um, I have definitely become more collaborative, uh, more willing to uh, take more feedback, in some cases, slow down a little bit more, uh, which can be good and can be bad. But at the end of the day, from a mindset standpoint, I think you have to be a certain type of leader and you have to have that collaborative approach and want to get the team along, get everybody rowing in the same direction uh, if you're going to run an effective ESOP company. Uh, so it, it definitely becomes a, instead of an authoritative leadership position, it's got to be more collaborative. The great thing about an ESOP that, that is good to talk about with everybody is it's our company. Mm-hmm. And hey, if it's our company, doesn't everybody want this thing to continue? So the succession planning becomes a lot more deliberate, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the leadership transition conversations, I think, become easier. Hey, this is going to have to transfer, and it it's it's not just off the radar. Uh, when you're gone, I mean, this thing has to move on. So who's who's taking your spot? Mm. Uh, who, who's taking my spot? I've, I'm, I've been very conscious about that even before the ESOP, but it's easier, I think, to tell our leadership team that without them. Uh, getting nervous about what their position is and some of those types of things. So mm-hmm. that probably doesn't answer your question uh, di- directly, but in my case, it just didn't change that much. Well, and y'all are definitely an interesting situation in that uh, if you've been to an employership conference or talk to people, eventually it comes up that just giving people that financial ownership stake is not necessarily going to change the way the business performs, right? There needs to be some change in behavior People need to recognize a long-term value, so they're less likely to leave. They make that longer-term commitment to the company. They behave differently on a day-to-day basis. You put in some sort of open book management system or some way that people can impact the business. Like That also needs to be the case. Y'all obviously started there and did that for a number of years and and have obviously made that a huge strength of your company. So then becoming employee-owned with the ESOP, like the financial side, it makes all the sense in the world and obviously links well. Um, so that makes a lot of sense too, that maybe that's just kind of ingrained in your leadership perspective from early on. Yeah, I would say, I would say definitely is the, the thing I would also comment on though, is that the hardest part of the ESOP for most leaders and most companies is the education process internally, mm-hmm. because it does, it does take a lot of education. Think about what most people uh, actually retain in one conversation. If you look, look at all the stats, it takes eight or nine times of hearing something before it actually sinks in. Mm-hmm. So think about that across the entire organization. Then remember that you've always got new people coming in. Mm-hmm. 
So they, they've got to hear that another eight or nine times. So uh, from a visionary standpoint, it's, it's one of those things that I struggle with because you feel like you're repeating yourself a lot. But again, I've become more comfortable with that because while 10 people in the room have heard it and actually get it, there's another 10 that haven't heard it or, or haven't heard it enough yet to understand it. Mm-hmm. And the big message with the ESOP is, hey, this is a long-term ownership game. Mm-hmm. I started this thing 22 years ago and look, look how hard it was to get here 20 years later. Uh, this isn't an overnight success story. Uh, and it's not going to be an overnight success story with, with you. So if you want to be a part of the ESOP long-term, you have to think about it in a long-term way. That's fantastic. And four years in, one of the biggest challenges we see from, from the members and the companies we work with is it's just very hard. I love the way you put it. It's a long-term ownership game. And it's, it's hard for people to see people who you think about, like the people driving the trucks or, or working on the front lines, have no experience whatsoever with owning a liquid private company stock no background, probably don't know anyone who's owned that either. So how has it been on the financial side with y'all and people people seeing that opportunity? Do you feel like people are getting it now four years in, they're getting the wealth building side of things? Is that something that um, they still need to work on? I mean, how's, how's that kind of going there? It's going good. Uh, it's going to be going a lot better here in a week and a half. We got our stock <laughs> reveal a week from Friday and it's awesome. So uh, uh, I wish I could uh, I wish I could share this in a week and a half, but <laughs> since since we can't do that, uh, the, the story's going good. We've we've shown growth uh, in in the share value. Uh, the company's kind of been on a springboard mm-hmm. uh, because again, we did go from a zero to a hundred percent ESOP. So obviously, anybody that understands that recognizes that, that creates a lot of leverage, and uh, you know we paid down a lot of debt. Uh, we've reduced our line of credit. Our sales have grown. We've shown profitability. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, EBITDA values are growing and did quite a bit in 2020. Fortunately, even in a COVID year, uh, we, we were able to react because of our engagement and cut a lot of expenses and actually throw some money to the bottom line, uh, wow. which uh, wasn't necessarily expected in April and May as we were going through COVID. So mm-hmm. uh, o- overall, I would say I would put it like this. I think it's a three to four year educational process to get people to really understand it. And there's two things in play. One, of course, if the stock value is favorable, that helps, uh, which in a 100% leveraged transaction, unless the company's not growing, you're paying down debt. So your stock value should go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's that is, and then also just the belief, uh, Hey, this is, this is real. I love when those stock uh, statements come out. That's, if you could change one thing in an ESOP, it'd be how can you get people some more stock value feedback more frequently than every year? Mm. Uh, but we, we do that through EBITDA and some different ways of, uh, of trying to estimate what that stock value might be. But uh, it's in a new ESOP, I think it's a three to four year process. We had people tell us that. And I 100% agree having gone through it. I, even as uh, engaged as our company is, I, I don't know that we did it any better than anybody else. Uh, from uh, when I say better, I, I don't think people got it any quicker. Maybe just because they got it, they got to get those statements and see those that stock value grow to some degree uh, to really fully grasp the concept. And um, you got different levels of the organization, I believe that. Uh, that grasp it quicker than others. So. 
Makes sense. So it sounds like for you, the key to helping people see the financial wealth building side of things is it sounds like it's repetition. It's focused on the stock statements and then almost thinking about linking that with your open book management, seeing if there are ways more than just once a year with that statement, seeing if there are ways you can get people focused on that stock value, obviously thinking about, okay, well, if EBITDA increases, if we can do this, then the share price goes up. What's that worth to you? Is that kind of the, the approach? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We have uh, uh, one of one of the things that we're working on is an ESOP calculator, and there's uh, there's a couple out there with some ESOP companies that we've seen that have done a fantastic job with that. But uh, e- even though we coach other companies, I will say the nice thing about having a, a what we call a living lab. I mean, Grit Business Coaching coaches others, mm-hmm. but the real fortunate thing is they've got PFS brands uh, and these other companies that are constantly learning. Uh, and, and we're growing and we're doing things different all the time. I mean, we're just not going to stop uh, learning from others. And we have seen some great videos on ESOP uh, from a couple other companies and a really cool ESOP calculator that we're either trying to buy or, or uh, figure out how we're going to replicate that because it was, it was really neat. Fantastic. Well, Adrian, any other questions on your end? I have, I have a, one I like. I was thinking we could end on. Yeah, you can wrap it up. Thomas, go ahead. Great. Well, Sean, as I mentioned, the, the goal for this really is to just tell the stories of, of employee-owned companies. So I guess for a business owner thinking about this transition, what would you say to them? Either advice or just kind of, yeah, what, what words of wisdom would you pass on to, to a business owner thinking about this transition? Well, first and foremost, go to, to, go to some conferences and, and, and get educated on it. Uh, pick up the phone and, and uh, without putting a, a, a plug in, but call somebody that, that knows about it, whether it be us or uh, just somebody that understands ESOP. We have connected multiple people that are thinking about it. Uh, it's such a unique business setup and sometimes sounds almost too good to be true. Mm-hmm. So as business owners and founders, we're all skeptical and, uh, and always thinking, hey, this, uh, some, wh- what's the catch? Uh, there, there's really no catch. It's, it's a great way to run a business, uh, especially if you're looking to to spread the wealth and give everybody an opportunity. So uh, go get educated on it, go to some conferences, uh, call those that are really familiar with ESOPs and do your homework. Fantastic. Well, and there's nothing wrong with plugs. Sean, what's the, what's the name of your, your book and how do people learn more about you as well? Cause I know you do all sorts of speaking and, and everything like that. Um, how can people learn more about, about you and, and grit business uh, coaching? And then obviously how can people find your book? Yep. Uh, Keeping score with grit, straight talk strategies for success. I can go to Amazon. Uh, that's available now on uh, electronic version, uh, book and uh, audible. So uh, that that's uh, uh, that's on Amazon. So keeping score with grit, uh, www.seanbercham.com. So seanbercham.com can learn a little bit more about me and speaking engagements. And then uh, we've got uh, Grit Business Coaching. Grit spelled incorrectly due to my childhood spelling problems. Uh, so Grit is G-R-I-T-T. Uh, does have a meaning. So gritbusinesscoaching.com. Uh, you can learn a lot about what we do for other companies there. Awesome. That's great. Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to hear about everything that y'all are doing. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you next time we can uh, go to one of these conferences. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the work uh, you guys are doing out there as well. So appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's see.